Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to WMUA Sports. My name is Jesse Glodkin, and I'm joined alongside Amherst, Berkshire Eagle, uh, Western Mass, uh, B-reporting legend, Howard Herman. Howard, how are you doing? Doing doing as well as can be expected, considering, you know, we've been in, in shutdown for two months. Can't fault you there. Speaking of the shutdown, I don't, I, I, that, that's kind of, you know, the dark cloud hovering over all of what we're talking about here. A-10 tournament never got finished. Other than that, it seems like most UMass, um, the major UMass sports kind of uh, have been pushed to the side. We're waiting to see how they will uh, be affected. Um, I mean, talking earlier, you said you think that UMass football, that's the first sport. I mean, UMass football and soccer are going to be the first sports that would come back. So do you think that they would come back? Soccer, I'm not quite as sure about. I don't know what the, you know, how, how, you know, how early kids can get on campus and all that whether or not kids will actually be on campus. If kids aren't allowed on campus, there won't be sports. Let's just, you know, we can just put that out there. They have to be there in order to practice and get ready for games. And nobody's going to just drive, you know, from all across the country to go to Amherst, you know, to play, to play football on a Saturday. I think that, you know, things are starting to loosen up in, in the state and obviously elsewhere. I think I just read, um, on Tuesday morning as we tape this, uh, that the governor of New Jersey has, is beginning to open everything up and he says pro sports are going to be will, ready to go, you know, sooner rather than later. So if that's the case, then I think it becomes a dominoes game where New Jersey does it, then maybe New York, then maybe Connecticut and, and so forth and so on. Speaking of UMass football last season, not exactly what fans, uh, wanted from the team but I do think that you know in a coach's first year uh you know on a team that lost you know probably their 10 best players Andy Isabella on offense Brighton Barr and, and the rest on defense one win isn't good but it's not exactly unexpected so that being said where do you think the expectations should lie for this season that's a really interesting question you know I was I, I was doing a little research uh, before before I came down before I came down to the, to the den to do the interview, and I was looking at the two deep from the BYU game, which was the last game of the regular season. There were sixteen freshmen or redshirt freshmen on on that two deep. Um, there are if you know there are about thirty five guys back. And there were, you know, based on that too deep, and I was counting them up, it's 8, 11, 19, 25 of the 44 players who were on the two deep were either freshmen or sophomores. Redshirt freshmen, redshirt sophomores. I didn't separate that. I, I built, you know, I put, them all, I put them all together. But that's a lot of, that's a lot of inexperience. And I don't know, I don't remember if you were at the signing day show that they held up in the Mullen Center. And Walt Bell told us afterwards, and I pulled the quote out of my story, I would foresee at least 20 of them, of the incoming freshmen, playing as freshmen with significant reps. That's not to play them before they deserve it, but just where we are from a depth standpoint. I remember that. Yeah. No, I, 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 I'm glad you brought that up because I think it was Alabama and Stanford were the only two teams who had who started as many um, true freshmen as UMass did last year. And, and, and remember, yeah. and remember, those guys, those schools are not starting the same kind of freshmen. 
Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Um, injuries and lack of depth. I mean, what is it? At the end of the season, I think you. Ma- I think they had six guys for the five alignment. That that is certainly going to be a real question in in terms of just talent depth um, and how many people, how many bodies they can put on the field. And the virus isn't going to help with that either. Well, I, yeah, I know they had about eight or nine guys from this year's recruiting class on campus in January. And they had started, I guess, to do some work and gone to meetings and lifted weights and, and got used to being college students before they all, before they all had to go home. The other thing that Bell said at the, at, after, the, after the TV show, he said, we're going to have to do this two or three more times in a row. You know, because obviously, well, we can't say obviously this is the best recruiting class in UMass history. On paper, it might be. But that only get you know, numbers and on paper only gets you so far. I keep thinking, you know, there are guys, Buffalo linebacker Tyler Medikevich was recruited by nobody in America and was gifted a, a last-minute scholarship at Temple. By the time he graduated, he was the Lombardi winner as the best linebacker in the country, at best and best defensive player, and was named the best defensive player in the country. So it doesn't, you know, and he was a, I think a, a zero star recruit. So you don't have to be a five, you know, you don't have to have a whole bunch of five stars to be, you know, to be really good on paper. This is the best division one, a recruiting class that UMass has ever had. Now it's going to be incumbent on, on, on Bell and his staff to coach them up and to bring a couple more in so they can develop that kind of depth and, you know, and not have to worry if two got two or three guys get hurt, if they're, you know, playing walk-ons who, you know, who are just there, you know, to help out. I think one of my big notes from, uh, from that media day was, or excuse me, from the signing day was he, they very much made an emphasis on, we got, we got guys in the trenches. Um, and because, I mean, you could absolutely see it last year in terms of they had a lot of injuries on the offensive line. And, you know, I think they had three or four true freshmen start on the deep, on the front seven. Um, Jonathan Ware, who is now a true sophomore, I believe, you know, he played a lot of minutes. And you could tell that they really put in uh, a lot of effort to, to fill in those gaps. Um, their number one player, Hugo Klages, per uh, 247, he, he, you know, he, he's been their big uh, uh, recruit so far from Germany. Um, DN, but they, I think I definitely think you could see him in, in multiple positions. Um, they they have seven people uh, enrolled right now, and the rest they have 19 more who signed letters of intent. So yeah, it'll, it'll we'll, we'll see when they get to uh, when they actually get to be on campus. It's interesting to watch development of programs that had kind of hit the bottom. This is the second time I've done this in a you know in the last five years because um, I cover Williams in Division Three, and they went from 0 and 8 to 5 and 4. They went 5 and 4 because they were allowed to play the ninth game. And that's a discussion for another day that I'm sure that most <laughs> people who are paying attention here don't really care about. But I've seen, you know, it takes several real recruiting classes. And Walt Bell has said, and other coaches have said, you just don't take guys to fill, to fill numbers. That's why I think they had some problems depth wise last year because the recruiting class was pretty good, but it wasn't very, but it wasn't, you know, you didn't bring in 30 guys because it is better to bring in, you know, like when you're just getting started, 
fewer guys, but you got to bring in your guys, the guys you want and the guys you think can help you, you know, down, down the road a little bit than just bringing in numbers of players who can, you know, who you can fill, fill spots with. I definitely agree with that. And I think you could see it as, uh, as the season progressed, Bell and his staff got a little more comfortable with putting their guys in positions. I mean, uh, O.C. Johnson, you know, was not the presumptive number one receiver entering the season. I think a lot of us thought it would be Samuel Emelis or uh, Sadiq Palmer. Bell made it very clear with the offense, O.C. Johnson's going to be a, uh, a big starter for us, and he was. Um, and you can see, you know, Andrew Brito came on down the stretch. Though I will say, I think that Brito um, is definitely going to have a fight for his job this coming season. They, got, they picked up three quarterbacks. Actually, let's talk about the quarterback situation. It was, it was the, 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 the week-by-week question was who's going to start, be it Andrew Brito, uh, Michael Curtis, or Randall West. And now they have uh, one, two, three, four, five, six quarterbacks on the, on the roster. Uh, is it safe to say that it's going to be someone who wasn't on the team last year? I would not say it's going to be safe to say that. I would say based on paper, it would be. Obviously has an advantage having, having gone through it. And I know last year quite frequently sitting um, in the press box and talking to fans on Twitter during games that Andrew Brito was a lightning rod for, that, for the inability of that team to move the football. And I used to say, yeah, he's a problem. But he's not the problem. You know, they, they had bigger, bigger issues than, than quarterback. Ironically, I, I, I used to think this, that, you know, that if, if like Ross Comas had had an extra year, he would have been a pretty good quarterback in that system that, that, that they ran. But he had used up all of his eligibility. If I were a gambling man, and since MGM Springfield is closed right now and I can't get there and gamble, I'm guessing that if everybody plays in, at summer training camp to, their, to the best of their ability, Kyle Lindquist will start. And that's assuming everything is equal because it's entirely possible that, that Brito or somebody else outplays the other quarterbacks. And the next thing you know, there's a guy that, you know, either, either Andrew's starting or there's a guy that we don't know that we aren't expecting to start that will start. But I think if they all play well, Lindquist has a pretty good pedigree. Uh, junior, you know, was really good in junior college. Um, and he played at the same junior college that Aaron Rodgers played at. If he can, you know, and maybe, you know, may, maybe that the, the coaching staff will have to tweak the offense a little bit to fit the skill sets of these quarterbacks rather than the skill sets of last year's quarterbacks. That also remains to be seen. Well, I, I, I agree with you on the Lindquist um, take. I, from the signing day, Bell definitely seemed to like him. I mean, he's, he is your prototypical starter, you know, big guy, 6'4", 215. He doesn't have the mobility that Curtis or Brito has, perhaps. But, he, you know, in terms of making throws, he definitely has the arm strength to do it. And for the last year, Bell had said that he wanted to be able to push the ball downfield. I mean, credit Brito, he has a good arm, but the lack of height definitely hurts that ability to see the field. I think the kid they really like, and, and his name is escaping right now, is the freshman from Florida. Not uh, Garrett DeZero, is it? No. No, he's, he came in in this year's class. Um, North, Northern Florida guy, um, 
Bell had known him since they were, since he was at Florida state and from before that, you know, and I think that. Was that a Will coach, Wilcock? Yes. That's like, that's the young, young man, Wilcock. And I think, I think, I think the coaching staff really like him. And if he does, you know, maybe, you know, it might be between the two of them. They're both, you know, six, three big athletic guys. You know, be interesting to see, you know, you know, Brito was kind of, you know, feast or famine well you know he had some real good moments and then some real awful moments i just think he's small and you know has a has a good enough arm and it, you know uh, maybe if maybe you know having the year off to study more and watch more tape will help him let's hop on over to um umass basketball they had a much more productive season Unfortunately, the virus stopped the first game, the UMass's first game in the A-10 tournament, like, was literally an hour before tip-off, and the A-10 tournament was stopped. UMass, which did kind of feel um, anticlimactic because UMass had an interesting season, started off 5-0, and then lost five straight, then kind of had up and down. It went up and down the rest of the year, but it all starts and ends with Trey Mitchell. Where, where, how does he compare to some of the stars that you've seen UMass have? He's, he's the he's the best he's the best big man they've had since Marcus Camby, as far as scoring and being athletic and you know and playing good and playing good defense. You you brought up you know the the abrupt end of the season. If they had won that first game, they might have made some noise in the tournament. I think. Um, I was supposed to go to the tournament, but we. But management talked me out of it before, even before it was canceled. I said, you don't really want to take the train into New York, you know, and then take the subway out to Brooklyn, you know, for, you know, with, 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 with the virus floating around. And, and they were right. The way I look, you know, they were 14 and 17 last year. In fact, it was last Monday. I, I had a conversation with Coach McCall um, on a whole range of topics. And I did not bring this up to him this way because another college basketball coach who I cover a lot would say, that's a reporter question um, instead of a coach, coach, you know, but when you think about it, did they, did UMass really lose to anybody they were supposed to beat? And did they really beat anybody they were supposed to lose? I think the only really bad loss based on the schedule, not based on the game, was losing it at home, was losing to George Washington. That's a game that they that that I think they should have won on paper beforehand. I mean, are you telling me that it was a shock that Yale came in and beat them? No. Yale's really good. You know, was it a shock that they lost to Harvard? Was it a shock that they lost to Dayton twice? No. I mean, the way I look at it, you know, yeah, there were games that were winnable. Coach McCall was talking about the, you know, the, the St. John's game. That was a winnable game. But the fact they didn't win it, were you shocked? I will um, say in, in that same vein, I wasn't shocked that they didn't win it. I don't think anyone really expected them to win. The Virginia game was one game that I think is – it definitely is going to um, sting because they were absolutely in that game for the entire They were time. absolutely in that game, but going into the season, do you, do you expect them oh, to be no. in that game? That's the reigning and champions. That's where, and and that's they're a very young team. No, I agree. Yeah. And that's where, and that's where I try to get at when I, when I explain this to people, I said, were there, you know, 
I, you know, there were a couple of games that they could have won that they lost. There are probably a couple of games that they lost that they could have won. All of that said, if you look at their schedule, I don't think 14 and 17 was that, was that crazy of a, you know, was that off of what we all thought going into the year. Um, especially because for much of the season, you know, McCall and his staff were trying to find a rotation because it seemed like just, you know, Bugs gets hurt two games in, you know, Mitchell got hurt. Uh, and then 11, I think it's 10 or 11 games in TJ weeks got, you know, had to have surgery and was out for the year. You know, Chapman didn't really play much before he decided he wanted to transfer. Um, Debaji Walker comes in later and has to fit into the system. So there were a lot of moving parts to last year's last year's team that I think had that group been healthy from day one and stayed healthy from day one, you know, 18 and 13 or, you know, 17 and four, something like that, you know, they they would have flipped the script on the numbers. Looking at how he progressed throughout the season, um, I think it was really interesting to see Trey Mitchell because I think a lot of people forget he's very young. You know, he's a true freshman. And in you could tell the first quarter of the season, he was not in control of his body. He was still, he was a young guy. He wasn't quite sure of himself. And as the season progressed, I do think that the coaching staff did a nice job of getting him more in the paint, getting him down low, letting him use his body. And you could see the confidence grow in him um, to, you know, you got to the second date in the game where he was going right at Obi Toppin. And so I'm very, I'm very curious to see how he looks at the start of next season. Well, here's the thing that when I think about him, I think of how much easier he had it in those first 10 games to score. Because once weeks went down, they had that team quite often had trouble making shots and scoring. Um, in fact, um, in my interview with, with Coach McCall, and it's online, berkshireagle.com backslash sports, and it's there somewhere. Um, he talked about, you know, we were, I was asking him if he was watching a lot of tape from last year, you know, to self-scout. And he said, yeah, no, because with so many new guys coming in, we're not even going to be close to being the same team. But what he talked to me about at some length was trying to figure out how, you know, there were day there were games when they had trouble scoring. Carl Pierre was, you know, was feast or famine. And I think this year he was a little bit more famine than feast. Um, the outside, you know, the outside shooting did not allow, was not good enough to keep teams from packing the paint to keep the ball away from Mitchell. And that's why I thought the big, the first, five or six games were better, you know, for him because that's when, you know, like, like that night, the, the, the weeks hit that shot from almost midcourt, you know, was, and he was legitimate number two option. Teams could not pack the paint again against Mitchell because you would get burned on the outside. So it's going to be key over the, over the summer and once these once McCall gets the group back to the Amherst to work in the Champion Center is to get secondary scoring to get some outside scoring because otherwise otherwise Mitchell's going to be black and blue 
and he's going to have three guys on him, and teams are going to say, go ahead, shoot from the outside. We're not afraid. Well, one of the things that um, this team is absolutely not lacking is guard depth. You know, we're assuming that Weeks and Bugs come back healthy, but they pick up Javon Garcia. You have Preston Santos, who's listed as a forward and a guard. Colt Mitchell, Kyra McCrory, he's a freshman. Noah Fernandez, uh, Carl Pierre. They definitely have a lot of shooting depth. I think you're you're absolutely right. The question is, can they shoot? Um, it very much seemed like they lived and died by the three. So if when they were hitting their threes, they could run with anybody. If they weren't hitting their threes, and generally Carl Pierre was the only guy who was really hitting them, then yeah, it was. If Mitchell puts up thirty points, they'll get to fifty, and that would be it. The two, I think, of the class coming in, the the guys who I am most interested in seeing. One of them I don't know if we will see is Noah Fernandez, because now that the because the NCAA did not approve the one-time transfer for this year, so he's going to he's going to need a waiver, and he could get one right away, or he could be Debaji Walker, and the NCAA could jerk that around for like seven months. But the other guy is is Javon Garcia. That was a powerhouse team at Brewster Academy. I just wrote a story that's going to run either tomorrow or the next day about all of the New England guys, where they were all ranked by New England Recruiting Report. I think seven of the top eight of New Hampshire guys were all members of that Brewster Academy team. And Garcia was one of them. He was, I think, 18 in New England, which was the highest ranking of the four UMass grads, uh, the four UMass recruits who were coming in from uh, New England prep schools, he was far and away the highest, you know, the highest ranked. So I think, you know, I got, I think he probably has a chance to, you know, to jump right into that rotation more, maybe a little bit more than some of those other guys do. Um, You know, of course they all have, they all have to earn it. And I think, you know, DeGray and Dominguez are more forward guys and a little more physical. And that's going to help, too, because other than other than Mitchell and Walker, wasn't a ton. They weren't the most physical team down the stretch. The only two centers listed on their depth chart are Trey Mitchell, someone new from Russia, uh, Mark Gasparini. Um, he's from, he, he from was, he's, well, he's originally from Russia. He went to school in the state. He's, he, he lives in Brookline. Um, he went to American University, and he's so and he's a grad transfer. He's a pretty good player. I was talking to one of one of American's assistants about him. He's going to be. He has a chance to be perfect for what UMass needs him to be. You know, 10, 10 12 minutes a game, physical presence, get some rebounds, score a few points when he needs to. And I would not be shocked. At some point next year, if Matt McCall puts in some sort of a set to play both he and Mitchell on the floor at the same time, free up Mitchell to play more of a wing, because I got the feeling that, you know, that at the next level, Trey Mitchell's not a five. Agreed. Assuming he goes to the NBA, he's got to be a wing. And if he he does that, you know, and you might see – and maybe you'll see a little of that Maybe I'm just spitballing that. I don't know. No, I, I, think, I think you're right. Mitchell is, seems more of a 4-5 hybrid type of player. Um, he certainly looks like he can develop the ball touch to shoot the three more like a four. 
And I, I absolutely could see them using kind of a, a two giants. Mark Esprit is more of a presence down on um, down under as the center. Um, and then, yeah, you have Mitchell on the outside. But I am wondering, in terms of all the guards, who do you think are going to be the, their, their, their two starting at one and two? Um, do, we think, do you think that Colton Mitchell is still going to be the starting uh, guard? I don't know who's actually going to be the – I don't know if he'll be the point guard or Bugs will be the point guard. It will be – I think it would be Fernandez if Fernandez gets his waiver. Uh, because I know, I, I, you know, the staff's really high on him, and he played at a higher level, you know, played for Wichita State in the, in the American, which is, you know, like the sixth or seventh best league in, you know, in the country. So he played at, a, you know, he played tougher teams on a more regular basis. And I know that, you know, they, they, were, they were always interested in him, you know, forever. I think he might be. It's a lot of guards. And I can imagine, and I can only suspect that at some point there, you know, there may be a bit of a winnowing, and by next year, one or two of those guys might get into the portal because they're not playing. But that all remains to be seen. Somebody, you know, they're they're going to have, you know, probably, you know, I don't know if the staff wants Walker starting or if he's more valuable coming off the bench, you know, uh, in the front court, you know. But other than weeks. Assuming we let us assume that TJ is healthy for the sake of this uh, discussion. I think Weeks, Pierre, and Mitchell are your starters. And the other two positions, whether it's going to be, you know, a couple, another guard or another, you know, a, a bigger wing, those are the two positions that are really going to be fought out in training camp. In terms of the A10, um, uh, it's fair to expect Dayton to take a step back, losing Obi Toppin. Who do you think will be the powerhouses in the division? Boy, that's a really good question, and I, I don't know. I, I honestly don't know. I, you know, it's going to be the team, the teams that can best weather this pandemic and get their kids ready to go will at least to start be better off. That doesn't mean they're necessarily better, but if you, you know, if you have been able to to sail the choppy seas, so to speak, and have your guys ready to go, it will be, it, it will certainly be an advantage. The team, I really, I, they had some guys come and some guys go, but the guy who I, I think Keith Dambrot does a great job at Duquesne. He did a great job at Akron. He did a fine job coaching this guy named LeBron James in high school. He's solid. Um, He's a solid player in the NBA. Yeah. He you know, lear, lear, learned his game really well. You know, I like what Duquesne has done. I they're going to play with a chip on their shoulder this year, because as I was reading, um, there will not be a city game in Pittsburgh, so Pitt won't play them. It's much like it's much like the chip that your fellow UMass alums have, because BC won't play them. Looking ahead, what do you think is probably a fair estimation as to how far this team is going to go? Not necessarily record. I personally, I think that if you look at their peak and their, their ceiling probably is fringe tournament, maybe NIT, but that's assuming they make a lot of noise in the A-10 tournament. Do you think that's too uh, over uh, optimistic or? I don't, I have long believed, and this goes back to when Steve Lapis was coaching at UMass and between, you know, 
going back to Bruiser and Lapis and Travis Ford and Derek Kellogg and now Matt McCall. UMass should be in a turn, you know, has enough of a pedigree and should be good enough to be in a tournament every year. It doesn't have to be the NCAA every year. It could be the NIT. But there is, to me, you know, they, you know, a coaching staff should be able to recruit good enough players here. And the league is such that the Minutemen should be able to qualify for either one of the big two tournaments or maybe even the third, you know, maybe even, you know, the CBA, this, you know, the C or the CIT or whatever it is, the ones you got to pay to play in. Cause sometimes those can be, those can be very valuable, you know, to get good at. Um, if you haven't, if you haven't been in a while. Big thank you to Howard Herman, of course, for doing this interview. You can find him on Twitter at Howard Herman, uh, or if you still read a physical paper or just look at it online, of course, you can find him in the Berkshire Eagle. And I hope you enjoyed this broadcast of Through the Wire on WMUA Sports. You can find all the other episodes on our SoundCloud, and we have a Spotify coming very, very soon. You've been listening to WMUA Sports.